Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of our podcast. Yes. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm happy to be with each of you, and I'm happy to be with you, Wendy. Thank you. Me too. It is summertime, summertime, some, some, summertime. Here Your favorite time of year, love. It is. I love it. You know what? I, I actually get, I don't know if anxious is the right word, but uh, sad that summertime seems to go by so quickly because I know you love it so much. Oh, thanks. That's really nice of you. That's a genuine entering into my world because it's not your favorite. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. I do. I feel it. Like I don't, I want it to go slower. Maybe it's also <laughs> leftover from childhood, like summer vacation where you, I, re I remember as a really little kid, like five or six years old, I thought summer was a whole year oh. and when i learned it was only three months it was so sad oh, oh i'm so sorry <laughs> maybe it's a leftover from that but it is also a genuine entering into your love of summer and thank you i think you're a happier person in the summer it's true maybe it's selfish <laughs> i just like hanging out with you when you're or not not that we hang out i mean you're my wife hang out doesn't sound right we live together we don't hang out together. We live together. I think I like living with you when, when it's summer time. That's the honest truth. <laughs> More than truth. winter time. I get it. Yeah. At the end of this summer, you have something exciting coming up, and you're working on it right now. I don't know if you want to tell our listeners yes, about it. Uh, we are doing a pilgrimage to Spain and Fatima. We are first going to Portugal to enter into the messages of Fatima and how... John Paul II's life and his theology of the body are all intertwined with that. And then we are going to follow in the footsteps of Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. So I've been working on the study guide that I'm putting together for the pilgrims. And there are still a few spots left on this pilgrimage. Ooh. If anybody out there listening is itching to go with us, um, you can learn more in the show notes. But working on the study guide, I came across this quote from John Paul II. He wrote this Actually, it was an interview with him very soon before he died in 2005. It's published in his memoir called Memory and Identity. And he says this about, this is about the assassination attempt on his life in 1981. So most people know that he was shot on May 13th, 1981, which was the memorial of Our Lady of Fatima. Uh, what many people may not know is that that was part of the prophecy. There is this mysterious third secret of Fatima that was not released until the year 2000, and the young visionary saw a bishop dressed in white getting gunned down by bullets and arrows, and Sister Lucia herself confirmed that she believed that the fulfillment of that prophecy or secret was May 13, 1981. Anyway, this is years later. John Paul is reflecting on the experience of going to visit his would-be assassin. He says, around Christmas 1983, I visited my attacker in prison. We spoke at length. In the course of our conversation, it became clear that he was still wondering how the attempted assassination could possibly have failed. He had planned it meticulously, attending to every tiny detail, 
and yet his intended victim had escaped death. How could this have happened? John Paul II reporting, you know, the sentiments of Ali Akka uh, when he met with him in, in his prison cell. Uh, John Paul goes on, he says, the interesting thing is that his perplex perplexity had led him to the religious question. He wanted to know about the secrets of Fatima and what they actually were. This was his principal concern. More than anything else, he wanted to know this. Perhaps those insistent questions showed that he had grasped something really important. Ali Akka had probably sensed that over and above his own power, over and above the power of shooting and killing, there was a higher power. Mm. He then began to look for it. I hope and pray, John Paul II says, that he found it. Well, what John Paul II didn't live to see on this earth, but certainly had the heavenly perspective on it, uh, apparently, Ali Akka became Catholic, get this, on May 13th, 2007. Wow. So, very interesting. I've, I've always been fascinated by this assassination attempt on John Paul II. I remember the day very well. President Reagan, remember this, Wendy? President yes. Reagan had just been shot like a few weeks earlier, and then it was in the news that the Pope had been shot. I was 11, I guess 11 years old when that happened, and um, it just made an impression on me, and little did I know that the blood he shed in St. Peter's Square that day would have a profound impact on my life. John Paul II was traveling on, in the Mobile through St. Peter's Square to announce that day the establishment of the John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family, of which I'm a proud graduate. Before he could make that announcement, boom, 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 he shot. Somebody did not want this theology of the body to get around the world. And if you want to understand how this all ties together with the secrets of Fatima, with the error of Russia that's spreading around the world still to this day, what that error is, how the theology of the body responds, well, maybe you're just going to have to come to Fatima mm. at the end of August with us <laughs> to learn more about it. How's that for a little teaser? <laughs> <laughs> or you can read my little booklet called Eclipse of the Body, where I explain it all there, too. That's true. Yeah, it is pretty, it's really fascinating. I, I just, I, you know, it's good to know, like, we're not just living life in this world with no interest from God, from, yeah, from the, the other side. citizens of heaven yeah. in our lives. That's right. This story really so profoundly communicates that. And I think that that's so hopeful. Very, very, and it is. It has always bolstered my my sense of faith that, um, yeah, there is a divine hand in the midst of the craziness we are living through. All of which was predicted by Our Lady of Fatima. She promised. She promised. In the end, her immaculate heart would triumph. Well, what does that mean? That could just sound like kind of religious word salad or something. An immaculate heart is a pure heart. And purity of heart, John Paul II says, is the ability to see the mystery of God revealed through our bodies. We are passing through, as the title of that little book indicates, we are passing through an eclipse of the meaning of the body. We, we have lost almost, we are almost in total darkness here as to the meaning of our bodies in the modern world. The triumph of the immaculate heart 
among other things, is the triumph of the ability to see the mystery of God revealed through our bodies. Mm. Very hopeful. Yeah. So buckle up, people. We live in we are living in interesting times, but it's it's uh, wow. The the triumph is coming when we don't know. But JP two said in 1994, it seems the promises made at Fatima are near to their fulfillment. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not making any predictions, but she promised, and I believe her promises. That's awesome. You ready for a question? Yes, let's jump in. Okay, this is from a patron named Father Daniel. Hello, Father Daniel. Thank you so much for your support of our mission. We're so grateful to you. Father Daniel asks, Why are we the bride in the spousal analogy, independently of being men or women, while the priest must be a man to signify the bridegroom? Father Daniel, this is a great question, and I can tell by your very articulation of the question that you are you're swimming in these waters of the spousal mystery because inevitably as we swim in these waters we bump up against these various questions so let's just answer the first question first why in the spousal analogy are we all the bride i say much more about this in well in a lot of my books but i'm thinking in particular of my q a book good news about sex and marriage in the final chapter, I address this. If you want to learn more, you can go there. But here's some, some food for thought. We are bride in the spousal analogy, and, and we have to take seriously the word analogy here, right? We use the spousal imagery as an analogy to help us understand something of our relationship with God, something very, very important. In the mystery of the relationship of God and humanity, God is the one who initiates the gift. This is love, St. John says, not that we first loved God, but that God first mm. loved us. That puts us fundamentally as creatures in a posture of receptivity to the Creator. Now, that's scary if the Creator is a tyrant, a domineering slave driver, uh, and if that's the case, then forget that. I don't want to be receptive to that. And that's exactly the lie that entered the human heart with the dawn of original sin. We believe the, the enemy's lie that God is a tyrant, a slave driver, and to be receptive to him is a threat. So we can go back to Genesis and we can recognize that there's, there's symbols here in the story of Genesis, so important. Why does the serpent approach the woman in the garden? Because the woman, John Paul II says, is the model and archetype of the whole human race. Why? Because her femininity embodies the very reality of this open receptivity to the divine gift. That's what her body speaks to. Her body, her very anatomy is, is open, receptive to the seed of life, right? Mm -hmm. In the marital embrace, it is the bridegroom who gives the seed. It is the bride who receives that seed, conceives the life within her, and bears it forth. Uh, my gosh, I, so much could be said here. I could go on and on and on. I don't have time in a, in a podcast format to go on and on and on, but just a few points to, to acknowledge. And this is very important. When we say the man is the one who gives the seed, the woman is the one who receives the seed, 
we should not think activity and passivity, right? Here, John Paul II says the giving and receiving interpenetrate so that the giving itself becomes a receiving and the receiving becomes a giving. So the bridegroom in giving himself to the bride also receives the gift of the bride. The bride in receiving the gift of the bridegroom also gives herself to the bridegroom. But we can see in the very anatomy of male and female, the priority of the giving and receiving, right? The giving is a priority in the male, the receiving is a priority in the female. And God has written this into our, our anatomy, our very bodies as male and female, to be a sign in this world of his relationship with us. Paul says this, he's summarizing here the whole, uh, the whole tradition of the prophets from the Old Testament that spoke of God as the bridegroom and Israel as the bride, right? When he says, this is Paul in Ephesians 5, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and it refers to Christ and the church. It is critical, absolutely theologically critical, that it is a male on the cross, Christ the bridegroom, saying to the bride, this is my body given up for you. And it is a female at the foot of the cross, Mary, symbolizing the church, symbolizing the new Eve, open to receive the gift of Christ. This is where our bodies reveal the most profound theology right in our masculinity and femininity. So that's why we are bride, right? In the spousal analogy, we are always bride. All of us, male and female, are bride. That's very, very important. We are the bride of Christ as the church. We are also in this, what we could call this corporate personality of the church. We are not only all of us bride, whether we are male or female, but guess what? We are also all of us, whether we are male or female, we are also priest. By virtue of our baptism, every member of the church becomes, at one and the same time, both bride and priest. So we could say both bride in that sense and bridegroom in this sense, because the priest is the bridegroom. What's being spoken here? There's so many layers to the spousal imagery, but one of the most important truths is that this marriage of Christ and the church happens within each and every one of us individually, which means there is, there is a marriage between the humanity and the divinity, and in the symbolic use of the language here, the divine is masculine and the human is feminine. And that marriage takes place in each of us individually by virtue of our baptism. There's a marriage of the masculine and feminine principles of Christ and the church in each and every one of our hearts, right? It's a symbolic understanding. I'm not saying of maleness and femaleness. I'm saying of masculinity and femininity. There's a masculine principle. There's a feminine principle that comes together and is united in each individual person who lives out the grace of his or her baptism. But when you speak of an individual member of the church who is singled out to image what the church is in her essence, 
it has to be a woman because the church in her essence corporately is feminine in relation to Christ, right? So the church corporately is feminine. And if you're going to single out a single person from the congregation to be a sacrament of Christ the bridegroom, it has to be a man. That's why only a man can be a priest in the ordained sense, right? So we have to distinguish here between the priesthood of all believers that all of us share in, whether we're male or female, and the ordained priesthood. The, the parallel to the ordained priesthood would be the religious sisterhood or motherhood, right? Only a woman can be a nun, right? Only a man can be a priest. This is where the sexual difference actually matters as we manifest it individually in our bodies, in that concrete manifestation or sacrament of Christ, right? It has to be a man because it's the man who gives the seed. Mm. So much more could be said, should be said about that. We don't have the time to go into all those details, but I hope, Father Daniel, that's at least gives you some food for thought. And uh, if you want to read more, check out my book, Good News About Sex and Marriage, the final chapter where I dive into that. Something I'm taking away from what you're saying, and it was profound. I hope some of our listeners replay that because it really is food for thought and prayer. So, so many powerful things there. But one of the things I noted was that when we talked about um, the church as bride, you used the word, the spousal analogy, and you even emphasize that word, analogy. So that is kind of a framework for knowing what is what is the kind of category to put that notion into. And then when we were talking about ordained priesthood, you were using the words symbol and image. And I think and sacrament. And sacrament. The key word here is sacrament. Okay. That for a sacrament to communicate the spiritual mystery it symbolizes, the physical reality has to mm, correspond. Right to the spiritual reality. For example, in baptism, the spiritual reality is one of cleansing and new birth. Water is the proper symbol of that. You can't baptize somebody with, with tar, because mm -hmm. that would be a symbol of making dirty. Right. right. The symbol of priesthood has to communicate the divine reality being communicated. And what's being communicated in the priesthood is the reality of Christ the bridegroom. Mm. You could no more a bishop could no more put his hands over a woman and say the words of ordination and have the sacrament happen than a priest could put his hands over graham crackers and Coca-Cola and have it become the Eucharist. You need the right matter for the sacrament mm -hmm. to communicate the reality. And the reality being communicated, again, is the gift of the bridegroom. That's why you need a man. And that's why a man trains to be a priest in the seminary, because He's being trained to give the spiritual seed. And what we're really getting at here is the integrity of the spiritual and physical realities. Mm. I really, really love that. It was really inspiring me as you shared. I, I was struck by one of my favorite scriptures that you mentioned about it was not we who first loved God, but he who first loved us. And just that's always been meaningful to me on just the level of knowing I'm loved before I even know to love. Mm, mm. Um, that's so powerful, and it just takes it to a 
deeper level to understand the spousal imagery that that contains. So that's beautiful. Another angle here is, I know the, the modern world wants to say there's no meaning to the sexual difference and men and women are simply interchangeable, but it's simply not true that we are simply interchangeable. There are many, 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 many things men can do that women can do. And there are many, many, many things that women can do that men can do. But there is at least one thing a woman can do that a man will never be able to do, become pregnant and give birth. And there is at least one thing a man can do that a woman will never be able to do, impregnate, give the seed that leads to that life. If priesthood, ordained priesthood, does not have something essential to do with that difference, then there's no reason a woman can't do it. But if it does have something essentially to do with that difference, with the fact that men produce sperm and women produce eggs, if it has something to do with that difference, then the church is absolutely right to say women can't do that because they're women. This is where the sexual difference matters. Priesthood is not a career choice. Priesthood is spiritual fatherhood. And spiritual fatherhood is revealed in this physical world through the mystery of a man's body. That Literally, the word testicles comes from the root, the same root that we get the word testify, testimony, testament. And the male body is designed by God to testify to the eternal fatherhood of God. This is why Christ can say, those who have seen me, what does he mean? seen my male body, have seen the Father. The male body is the sacrament of the eternal fatherhood of God. A woman participates in that, but as a mother. That's where the difference matters, right? Mm. The model here for women is the Blessed Mother. The model here for men is Christ who came to reveal in his body the love of the Father. Our next question is from an anonymous listener. After four years of relationship and living in chastity with my boyfriend, we are going to marry. Woohoo! I'm really happy, and I'm sure of how much we love each other. But the thing is that I'm really afraid because I feel like I rationally understood and love all this T.O.B. teaches, but in my heart, I still feel a lot of pain when I think about the marital embrace. This is because of all the traumatic experiences I had before this relationship. Therefore, I want to ask for your advice on how to prepare myself for receiving the sacrament and how to confront my fear of consummating our marriage. Bless you, my dear sister. Bless you and all you are going through here. Wendy, you and I can relate to that. I rem remember just various conversations you and I were having in our engagement and I was bringing, uh, we were both bringing baggage, but I had more that I was bringing than you were bringing. And I remember what we had to work through in our time of engagement to get to a place of a deeper peace. And I remember one particular moment in our engagement, this would be in the summer of 1995, which was a long time ago. <laughs> but this is fresh in my heart because of how significant it was. I had been sexually active in a previous relationship, and it was, it, it was, 
I was coming into our marriage with a troubled heart because of that. And yet this, this, I remember the moment, I even think I remember where we were. Mm -hmm. uh, we were in your home, Wendy, and we were talking through some things, praying through some things, your childhood home. Right. We're talking through some things and praying through some things. And, and I realized, wait a minute, what we are entering into on our wedding night, praise God, is not what I experienced in this other relationship. Because in this other relationship, I was not giving myself maritally, right? The marital embrace, if it's truly a marital embrace, is a, an expression and renewal of wedding vows. We commit to loving one another freely, totally, faithfully, and fruitfully at the altar. It is a free, total, faithful, fruitful gift of self. And I realized, wait a minute, I've never done that. I've never given myself freely, totally, faithfully, and open to life in, in, in that way ever before in my life. And I realized that it was so hopeful to me. I realized this will be new. This will be, yeah. this will be new. It, and it is an injustice to compare the marital embrace to a non-marital act, right? Premarital sex, by its very nature, is not marital sex. And I remember this came out. You may remember this, Wendy, when we were doing marriage prep back in the day, when uh, we lived and worked in the Archdiocese of Denver. And a young engaged couple, I was encouraging them all to save sex for the wedding night, and I knew based on surveys that we had done that. 90 plus percent of the people in front of us are already sexually active. And I, I, I made the challenge, invited them to refrain. And one of the couples with a woman kind of angrily said, oh, come on, Christopher, we're getting married in, in a month and a half. What is the big difference between us having sex now and us having sex then? And it dawned on me right as she said that. I said, well, that, that is exactly the problem. There will be no difference. What you're doing right now is not the marital embrace. And there's no magic trick on the wedding day that suddenly makes what you're going to do that night a free, total, faithful, fruitful gift of self. You've been training yourself in the opposite. Uh, and you're going to bring that same pattern with you into your marriage unless there is a major conversion here, a change of your hearts. And that's the hope that I want to hold out to our anonymous listener here, that the possibility of a real change of your heart is, is real. Now, you didn't get into the details, of course, of, of what the past pain is here, and, and there would be a different way I would answer this question if I knew, for example, there was some maybe real sexual trauma where you had been abused or something. Um, if it was a consensual premarital sexual relationship, I'd approach it one way. If it had been, you know, your your virginity had been stolen from you by a perpetrator, um, I would approach this in a in a different manner. But but nonetheless, without those details, I just want to speak God's love and healing mercy into whatever those wounds are. And the hope, the promise 
that as you let the Lord into those places, those painful places in your heart, there is the possibility of a real renewal, a real healing, a real integration. It doesn't mean everything's going to be fine and beautiful and perfect on your wedding night. Uh, we're 20, nearly 27 years married, and we're still working on healings that we need, a deeper integration. That's an ongoing, lifelong journey. But it is worth making that journey, dear sister, and you're already on it. You wouldn't be asking this question if you weren't already on that journey. I love in your answer, Christopher, when you talked about this realization of this is something utterly different. It's not a, okay, now I get to go back to that. Yeah, now not, I'm doing that. What I did before, now I'm doing it with this person. No, I had never, yeah. ever given myself maritally. And I think that's such a gift of theology. The body is looking at what we are communicating in our bodily gift of self. Well, I even put it there. That's what we're communicating um, in marriage, that it becomes not just, um, oh, it's not prohibited anymore to have this pleasure, right, right. but it's a meaningful communication that can only take place when it means what it means. When it me Amen. Amen. So I think that is a huge help. Oh my goodness, how blessed we are who know that. Even if we know we're not living it perfectly, at least we have something to reach for in our hearts and in our prayer and in our opening ourselves to grace. We have something to reach for. And I think as you've talked about, um, our questioner talked about um, having rationally understood and loving theology of the body, I think part of that is the gift of making sense of why something was painful. You yes, know, yes. that is a gift when you don't know, it just hurts and you're confused. And then, and then to have that confusion go away and the gift of light and insight is so helpful. And it is a stage of your healing. And it, it could be that there's an, another stage of your healing that you can enter into before your marriage that may involve some counseling to not just make rational sense of what the meaning of the marital embrace is, but to maybe allow grace into your memories and the, the painful wounds to begin to, or to continue that healing process that the Lord has already begun there in a deeper way. Um, maybe to look at specific fears that are coming up in you and um, allow grace into them in a deeper way. And that's scary. It feels safer not to look at those painful things. And yet your coming marriage is, is kind of the, the impetus to go ahead and go a little deeper. I, that's not in any way to say, like Christopher said, you, you don't arrive at your wedding day perfect. <laughs> you don't get perfect and then get married. It's part, your marriage will be part of that healing process as well. But I think both looking at that maybe with a counselor and then discerning what you may be called to share with your fiance as things are made more clear to you will simply enable him to have greater tenderness toward you and your union. When we know that marriage is, is a vocation to holiness, not a vacation because you've arrived at holiness, <laughs> it takes the pressure off. Make peace with the journey. This is something my spiritual director has said to me over and over and over again. Make peace with the journey. 
it will be a long, the, for all of us, the journey of integration, of healing, of coming to real wholeness is a long, long journey. And I started out our marriage also with a great rational understanding of John Paul's teaching, but uh, all these years of married life have, have taught me the journey from the head to the heart is, is long and difficult, and we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't expect otherwise. We shouldn't beat ourselves up for, for not being whole human beings right now. Uh, the Lord is patient and kind and tender and merciful, and He's not just the destination, He's the way. So he's with us along the way of our journey towards wholeness. So keep going, dear sister. Uh, we love you, and we're rooting for you. Mm -hmm. Our next question is also from an anonymous listener. Thanks so much for your podcast. My husband and I listen to you every week. We've learned so much about the theology of the body and how that relates to God's love for us. I'm a mother of three teenagers aged 18, 15, and 14. We are a God-loving family, and as parents, we're always striving to maintain God in our lives and the lives of our kids. The biggest struggle we're currently facing is the effects society is placing on our kids' views on sexuality, specifically their views on the LGBTQ community. Although our kids attend Catholic school, they're constantly bombarded by these distorted ideas about sexuality and relationships. My husband and I have sat down with them and tried to explain that we do not hate people in the LGBTQ community, but that as Catholics, it goes against our beliefs. We are seen as homophobes and prejudiced by our kids. Do you have any suggestions as to how to address this conversation with our kids? It pains me to think that I have lost them to societal influences. Mm -hmm. What a deep, deep ache in a mother's heart I'm hearing there. And I, I just want to reverence that pain, that sorrow of the mother, and the mystery of a mother's suffering takes us, if we follow it, right into the mystery of the heart of the Blessed Mother and her sorrows. Um, she, obviously, her son did not get swept away by the lies of the world. He came to conquer them, but he did get bombarded with them. He got engulfed by them. He got uh, attacked by them, and she had to witness that. All the hells that have befallen all of humanity, she had to witness befall her son, even though he was not guilty of committing any of those hells or, you know, being deceived by them himself. So there is a, a place, I just sense it in your the cry of your mother's heart, there's a place for deep and rich communion with the cry of Mary's heart at the foot of the cross. And I invite you there. Ultimately, the the solution, and, and even the word solution seems so <laughs> kind of crass or something in the midst of such a painful sorrow. There's no solution other than uniting that sorrow with the mother at the foot of the cross and riding riding the Paschal mystery through all of its sorrows and into its glory. I, I wish there was a detour. I, I've been looking for a detour around the Paschal mystery my whole life, and I think I'm kind of convinced there is, isn't a detour. I'm, I'm kind of like committed to stay in the course, even though I still resist it. Uh, 
So I invite you there. I invite you into that Paschal mystery, that sorrow of the sorrowful mother. I also invite you to um, a deeper entering into the gift that John Paul II has given us. I don't know, obviously, details of your family life, but uh, it could be a fruitful thing to, I don't know, go through. For our patrons, we have a, a program that Bill Dunahee does uh, where he walks through the theology of the body for a teenage audience, and parents and teens can go through that together. Um, we have some retreats for our patrons that can take people through some of the healing that is needed when people have been influenced uh, and even warped by what the culture is saying. So I'd, I'd point you in the direction of all the resources that we provide our patrons, uh, which you can learn more about in the show notes, how to become a patron and how to take advantage of those benefits. But there is something, I, I'm going to hold this out certainly without any knowledge that this is the case. I have no knowledge that this is the case, um, but I, I'm sensing kind of a, a rebellion in your children because you, as you have said, have you're a God-loving family. You've done all that you, you know how to do to present the good news to your children, and they're rebelling against it. They are buying into a, an alternate vision of things. And <laughs> this, this could sound really like contrary advice, but I'll tell you the best thing my father ever did for me when I was in that stage of rebellion as a teenager, the best thing he ever did for me was let me go. Let me go down the wrong path. I remember so clearly, I'm 17 years old, maybe I was 18, I was in a really, really difficult place with my parents. I had been estranged from my parents. They had moved out of state to Maryland, and I stayed back to finish my senior year of high school. And uh, I was barely talking to them. And my father was, was desperately trying to get my life on the right path. It was not on the right path. And we would just clash over and over and over again. And I remember him saying to me, I feel like, he was saying this, this is in his voice, I feel like I'm on the top of a mountain and I'm looking down and I see you coming around the bend and I see there's a big rock in the road and you're going to crash into it and it's not going to be pretty. And I said to him, let me crash. Stop trying to control my life. And I would come to learn years later that I was right to to not to reject the truth, but to demand respect for my own self-determination. This is part of the freedom that God has given us. Go back to the Garden of Eden and, and, and look at how God deals with his disobedient children. He lays out the consequences. He says, don't eat from that tree, and if you do, here's what will happen. You'll die. But when they reached out for it, he didn't smack their hands and send them to the room so they couldn't get it. He respects our freedom even to make wrong decisions. Now, obviously, there are limits to that, and, and we're talking about teenagers here who are approaching the age of independence and all of that stuff. This does not apply when a three-year-old is crossing the street and is about to get hit by a car. 
You don't say, I was just respecting the child's freedom. No, you intervene, right? So there are limits to what's being said here, but uh, here I'm quoting John Paul II, people deserve their liberties even if they make mistakes in exercising them. And I'm thinking of, of another line in a document um, from the Pontifical Council for the Family, where they say, parents should look for the element of truth that may be present in some forms of their children's rebellion. Right? So that's a well-nuanced statement. The element of truth that may be present in some forms of their children's rebellion. I know as a teenager, I was rebelling against a religiosity that was being imposed upon me. And I am not pleased. This is where I, I really, I don't know what's going on in your family. But could it be, I'm asking this as a question, could it be that your children have felt something's being imposed on them? And could you find ways of being more proposing the truth rather than if there has been an imposing of that truth. Wendy, do you have any thoughts you want to share here? One of the things that I think teenagers are certainly lacking, and it's hard for them to realize they're lacking, is the perspective that you get as you live longer. You can't have that perspective when you haven't lived longer. And that story you shared, Christopher, was about your dad feeling, that feeling of perspective. It's a literal perspective in his image. He's at a place where he can see something you can't see. Can I add something to that story just briefly? Mm Because it's it's kind of the the important point or the fruit of, of what happened. He finally let me go. And he finally intentionally said, I'm done trying to force you to live the way I want you to live. And that freedom he gave me was critical, absolutely critical. And within six months, I was on my knees saying, God in heaven, if you exist, you better show me. But I needed that freedom. I needed to be let go of in order to have my own space to to ask my own questions and go on my own journey. So that's what I was suggesting, uh, that, that children, especially when they're approaching 17, 18, they need, they need that yeah, they need that. Yeah, space. I, I think that's interesting. You mentioned sort of the older age yeah. of teens, which in this family you have a, a you know a range of ages. Um, one of the things I think it can be just hard, and there's no perfect way to do it, but it, to try to introduce that idea of having different perspective and that um, need, as you mentioned, Christopher, to affirm the elements of truth. So there are elements of truth in the sensitivity that is being kind of preached in our culture right now in the sense of, you know, respecting that different people have different experiences that can be painful and significant. And we don't, we can't assume that our experience matches theirs. So that sense of of being honoring of the unique experience of the individual or, you know, trying to be sensitive to that, there are ways to affirm that. That's not a bad thing in and of itself, even though there's a lot in the mix that is bad. Um, but I think looking for the things that you can affirm and agree on is helpful with your Very children. Very helpful, yes. And also just asking them to be willing to hear 
different perspective to introduce that idea that they're what they may think of as the conclusion they've come to on their own you can probably see has been fed to them but it's a it's a hard thing to realize that it's right. been fed to us and it can be offensive even to have someone tell us that so it's all sensitive in that way but if there can be you know uh, and it totally varies depending on the relationship with the individual children but um, if there can be an openness to a respectful sharing of a different perspective, one of the things I'm thinking of is um, a film called The Third Way. Oh, yeah, uh, that's a good one. Which may be something that you can watch yourself and, and decide whether your children, you know, you want to share it with any of them or all of them. Uh, that is about, uh, it's it includes the testimony of people with, very broken sexuality and attractions about experiencing a grace in the church that isn't about either, you know, re uh, kind of a rigid rejection of all people with these struggles, nor an embracing of it as normal. So I, if I'm expressing that yes. well, that's, yes. that's kind of what this film is doing. And it's a gift. It's a real gift because how... We don't meet these people every day, but we meet them in this film. And it's really helpful when we think about just honoring the individual and what that can teach us. You have such an opportunity to do that in this film. Um, so that's a suggestion. Also, there have been um, the work of, say, Hudson Biblo is a, um, a Catholic man who has come out of... Um, ex the transgender uh, experience. There... Did we have a talk by him on available on the patron? I feel I like we do. I don't know that we do. Um, Not for sure. I, I can't know. I don't know for sure. Oh, so but sorry. you can check, see if we do. Okay. Um, so yeah, to look for those ways and open doors to share, and with everything you said about that that prayer and trusting that God is bigger than all of these things, I think those are some elements that could come in and be helpful. And it's. I'll just add that it's so important to explain the why behind the what of Catholic teaching here. Uh, I'm sure your children have heard at a minimum the what of what the church teaches. You said, you know, you've presented this is not in accord with our beliefs, but do they understand the why? I, I, I hope you have explained that, and maybe they've still rejected it, but maybe there's some more work to be done there. And you might want to look at the Good News About Sex and Marriage book which is dedicated to explaining the why behind the what. JP2 says that these different views come down to irreconcilable concepts of the human person mm -hmm. and of human sexuality. So there's a whole vision of what a human being is that the world is buying into and that the church is standing against. And when we can frame it in that way and help people see the anthropological vision, it's a fancy word we don't use every day, it just means the vision of what a human being is, created good, tragically fallen, in need of redemption, the redemption is given. When we present that vision, the, the, what John Paul II calls the total vision of the human person and his vocation, that, my experience is, that resonates deeply in people's hearts. It's challenging, it challenges us,
but it resonates. It corresponds to our own experience. But oftentimes we need a little more life experience for, for that resonance to, to happen. Mm. And in the meantime, and all the time, we have to give people space. I was just finishing up a little book called The Personalism of John Paul II by John Crosby. And in there, he says, we need to learn to take our heavy hands off of one another and give people space to go on their own journeys. Um, it does not mean we condone bad choices, but again, quoting John Paul II, people deserve their liberties even if they mis make mistakes in exercising them. Uh, God treats us as such, and we need to learn how to love one another with the way God loves, and God loves with the respect for our freedom even to choose wrongly. Otherwise, it's, it's not love uh, in the end. Well, we've come to the end of this episode. We hope we've, we hope we've shared some thoughts with you today that have blessed you and helped you. If you know others who would be blessed and helped by hearing this, please hit that share button. Until our next episode, keep those questions coming. And may you know it in your bones that you are an irreplaceable, indispensable, unrepeatable gift. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute, with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.